Hello, I'm Dr. Debbie David Clark. I am a clinical associate professor in the Department of Family Medicine at the University of Iowa. And I do most of my work in the area of palliative medicine. I want to thank the Iowa Geriatrics Education Center for giving me the opportunity to speak to you today about symptom management in the dying patient. I practiced for many years in rural Iowa and I know the challenges that a clinician faces when trying to help patients die comfortably. What I hope to do today is give you an overview of management principles that can be useful to you in the future. At the end of that discussion, I will spend a bit of time going over principles of death pronouncement, a responsibility that has now been extended to clinicians other than physicians in Iowa because of recent changes in the Iowa law. First of all, I want to let you know that I do not have any financial interests or relationships with any manufacturer of products or providers of services that I might be discussing in my presentation. I have no financial relationships with any of the companies uh, supporting this educational event, and I will not discuss any pharmaceuticals, medical procedures, or devices that are investigational or unapproved for use by the FDA. If I do happen to uh, mention a medication that is off-label, I'll do my best to let you know that. The objectives for today uh, are to describe the essential elements of a good death as identified by patients, family members, and caregivers, describe three methods for assessing pain intensity, describe pharmacological interventions that can effectively treat pain, shortness of breath, delirium, anxiety, and nausea, vomiting, and end of life, and to summarize the key steps of comprehensive death pronouncement. I would like to uh, show you this cartoon that uh, is one of my favorites. The caption says, yes, that's right. The answer is Wisconsin, another 50 points for God. And uh-oh, looks like Norman, our current champion, hasn't even scored yet. This cartoon helps remind me that there will always be people who know more than me. And that awareness gives me the healthy humility to learn from others. In my experience through the years, hospice and palliative medicine people have been collaborative people. It's a collaborative culture with the focus on the patient. And the members of this culture teach each other. We live in a time when patients, families, and colleagues can get enamored by technology. I think this statement is actually applicable in most clinical situations, but especially in the dying patient. It is a time to be very patient focused. There are many definitions of palliative care. Uh, I like this one that was put together by the Hospice and Palliative Care Association of Iowa in March of last year. Palliative care is an interdisciplinary service provided to relieve suffering, align goals, and improve quality of life as individuals and their families cope with a potentially life-limiting illness, regardless of treatment plans and life expectancy. This slide represents two views of palliative care. On the top is the old view. And that was that all aspects of patient care were focused on care until the very end, and then palliative care would begin. The more comprehensive view is that palliative care is integrated into care earlier in the disease trajectory and becomes more dominant towards end of life. Hospice is palliative care at end of life. Listed here are six common symptoms that caregivers face at end of life. There are others, but time limits our discussion to these today. I like to refer to the three C's, contented, comfortable, and connected. It is not always possible at end of life to have all three, but that is always the goal, and most of the time, it is achievable. There are traditionally four domains of suffering that are taught. I have added uh, 
somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but also with some degree of seriousness as well, bureaucratic. This aspect of suffering should not be minimized. Bureaucratic suffering includes insurance forms, hassles, medications that are unaffordable, and communication glitches. This is the suffering for which a social worker is indispensable. One of my favorite medical writers is Rachel Naomi Remen. This is one of her comments. I use it almost every day in the environment that I work in. I use it a lot when I'm interacting with students, residents, and fellows. I center my care around this philosophy. Remember that the patient lying in bed represents a story. The family is rereading the book with its many chapters and pictures. If we don't connect at some level with the story, we cannot give effective end-of-life care. So we, we all have our own ideas about what re represents a good death. The study that I'm reviewing is, was an attempt to identify the key elements of a good death using a population in the Durham, North Carolina area and reported in the Annals of Internal Medicine. There were 12 focus groups involved, and these groups in, included nurses, chaplains, social workers, hospital volunteers, physicians, patients, and bereaved family members. Each group averaged six members, and three of the groups were patients. And they were asked to discuss their experiences with the deaths of family members, friends, or patients, and reflect on what made those deaths good or bad as they saw it. These were the key factors that they identified. Clear decision-making touches on the desire to remain connected. Preparation for death includes addressing concerns of a spiritual nature. Completion means having closure in all the issues that are important to a person. Contributing to others suggests the importance of meaning. Affirmation of the whole person implies the importance of maintaining a sense of self. One of my colleagues that I work with says that we are meaning-making creatures. For some of you as you listen today, as caregivers, your concept of personhood may be limited to the physical and the mental aspects of existence. I think those two aspects are pretty easy for all of us to acknowledge. Some who are listening to this presentation may possibly reject a spiritual side to personhood, while others will affirm its presence. Regardless of your personal views on spirituality, it is important to understand that for some patients and families, it is deeply integrated into their lives. This is one way to picture the integration of spirituality. This is another. As we begin now to look at symptom management, we should understand that symptoms have the ability to impact all aspects of personhood. Pain is the quintessential example. Preoccupying pain becomes the focus of existence. It impairs every aspect of living that is important to patients. It interferes with physical functioning. It interferes with social interaction. It may provoke or exacerbate significant and deep ex existential issues. It escalates the fear of catastrophic death. The assessment of pain means going back to basics. This is the progression of questions that I was taught in my physical diagnosis class as a second year medical student in the 1970s. It is still the list that I use.
there are two basic types of pain to address. Nociceptive pain is a response to some type of local tissue insult. Neuropathic pain is more complex and may be related to changes in pain messaging that are occurring in the spinal cord or in other areas distant from the area of perceived pain. Notice that neuropathic pain has different descriptors and we make the diagnosis primarily by listening for these descriptors. Burning, tingling, sharp, hot, shooting, pins and needles, tearing, jabbing, stinging, electric shock, and zingers. In assessing the intensity of pain, two methods are shown here. On the left are word descriptors that are used as a word analog scale. On the right are numbered levels of intensity, typically asked as a numerical analog scale. Most of us are familiar with the numbers. It's the question that we all ask every day on a scale of 0 to 10, with 10 being the worst pain you've ever had and 0 being no pain, how would you describe your pain? Or how would you rank your pain? This slide shows the Wong-Baker Facial Pain Scale, which is useful in cross-cultural settings where language may be a potential barrier. It's also useful when talking with children about their pain. Opioid side effects can be easily remembered using this mnemonic that I call C-SPURN, a variation of C-SPAN. Constipation, sedation, and it's important to understand that sedation comes before respiratory depression. Respiratory depression is something certainly that can happen, but sedation occurs before respiratory depression. Paritis, urinary retention, nausea, and neurotoxicity. We have limited time today to talk about opioid equivalencies, but from this chart I can make several summary points. The milligram to milligram conversion of oral morphine to IV morphine is 3 to 1. The milligram to milligram conversion of oral hydromorphone or Dilaudid is 4 to 1. The milligram to milligram conversion of oral hydromorphone to IV hydromorphone is 5 to 1. And a useful conversion is that 10 milligrams of IV morphine as a single dose equals approximately 100 micrograms of IV fentanyl. In this slide, I have listed the initial doses of opioids for opioid-naive patients. Typically, the end-of-life patient is older. It is best to start with small doses and titrate the doses upward. The reason that hydromorphone is listed as a one milligram dose is that the smallest tablet made is a two milligram tablet. Trying to cut a two milligram tablet into fourths is not practical. A liquid form of hydromorphone is available, which is easier to titrate but is more expensive. Here are two additional opioid conversion pearls that I've also found useful. IV hydromorphone dose times 20 will equal your oral morphine equivalent dose. So if you give a patient 0.5 milligrams of IV hydromorphone, you are giving them as an opioid equivalent 10 milligrams of oral morphine. The second pearl is that your daily morphine equivalent, that is the total amount of morphine total for the day, that's your long-acting morphine plus your breakthrough dosing of morphine, converting all of that to oral morphine and multiplying by 0.5 is the microgram per hour fentanyl transdermal patch dose rounded up to the nearest strength patch. This is a very useful shortcut. A common question 
from learners is how do I increase the dose? I just had this discussion two days ago on service. For ongoing moderate to severe pain, increase your opioid dose by 50 to 100% irrespective of the starting dose. For ongoing mild to moderate pain, increase by 25 to 50% irrespective of the starting dose. Remember that dosage escalations of less than 25% generally have no significant efficacy. Short-acting oral single-agent opioids such as morphine, oxycodone, or hydromorphone can be safely dose-escalated every two hours if the clinical need dictates. Sustained-release oral opioids can be escalated every 24 hours. You'll notice at the bottom of the slide that I have made reference to a website, www.eperc.mcw, that stands for Medical College of Wisconsin.edu. Um, this is the source of FastFacts, which is uh, available online to any uh, interested learner. It, it is a tremendously useful site, and I encourage all of you listening uh, to this presentation to become familiar with this site and to look at it. I'm sure many of you are already uh, familiar with it, but if you have not visited the site, this has just uh, an incredible amount of useful information as it relates to palliative care. What about methadone? The short answer is this drug is not for the novice. Methadone has a long plasma half-life which can range from 12 to 150 hours. It may take up to four weeks to achieve steady state. Methadone dosing should not be changed more frequently than weekly unless the patient is in a closely monitored setting and it should only be used by clinicians that are familiar with its unique properties. Shortness of breath can have many causes. How aggressively these causes are pursued depends on entirely on the goals of the patient and how close the patient is to death. Here are listed a number of causes of dyspnea in advanced cancer. And some other causes of dyspnea in non-cancer conditions. In the management of dyspnea, the clinician should have some basic understanding of the history, if nothing more than to help give explanations to the patient and the family about what is happening. Oximetry to guide therapy is of limited value in the patient at end of life. Dyspnea in the terminally ill patient does not correlate with the degree of hypoxia as measured on oximetry. Not that it can never be used, but understand the limits of the information that it gives you. Avoid using oximetry to achieve a therapeutic threshold. Patient feedback and observing the patient is a better guide to treatment than pulse oximetry. Remember, the best bedside monitor is the patient. Oxygen has a role in symptom management, but understand that in some settings, its use is as much symbolic as it is for achieving anything physiologic. Use it for patients who feel that it does give uh, help to the feelings of dyspnea, but don't use it to try to achieve a minimum oximetry reading. If you do happen to put an oximeter on the patient and note that you get a normal reading, think about the possibility of other factors that are contributing to the dyspnea, such as pain, anxiety, spiritual concerns, or relational issues. At least one randomized double-blind controlled trial in patients with advanced cancer has shown plain air to have similar dyspnea relief to oxygen. One of the most important roles of the caregiver is to be an empathic presence, an educator. Educate the patients 
and the caregivers and the family members on what is happening, including activity limitations. Discuss and understand the patient and caregiver fears around the diagnosis. There is no cookbook for palliative care. Each patient care situation needs to be personalized and individualized. Be sure that there's appropriate equipment for the patient. And don't underestimate the value of a fan in the room. Actually uh, blowing on the patient if they can tolerate that without it being uh, too uh, uncomfortable as far as uh, feeling cold. It may help their dyspnea quite a lot. Opioids are clearly effective as a treatment for dyspnea and multiple diseases at end of life, including cancer, congestive heart failure, and COPD. The mechanism of action of opioids is uncertain. They probably reduce central perception of dyspnea. They reduce anxiety. They decrease the respiratory response to hypercapnia and in some measure improve cardiovascular performance. There are high concentration of opioid receptors in the brainstem and throughout the lungs. Listed here are the dosing strategies for opioids, which are essentially the same for dyspnea as they are for pain. The doses are titrated to response. The management of opioids for dyspnea can be added on to an opioid regimen for pain. So if the patient is already on an extended release opioid for management of their pain, then the immediate release opioid dose that you would use for dyspnea would be approximately one-tenth of the total daily dose of their morphine that they're already taking for pain. As an example, if a patient is taking 30 milligrams of morphine extended release three times a day, that would be a total of 90 milligrams of morphine a day. If you divide that by 10, that would be 9 milligrams, so rounding out to 10 milligrams would be the immediate release morphine dose. Initiation of an extended release opioid is a reasonable option for patients needing more than three doses of immediate release opioid per day. Currently, there is not strong evidence for the efficacy of nebulized opioids in the treatment of dyspnea. There is certainly a lot of belief by clinicians and practitioners in the efficacy of nebulized opioids, but the evidence really is not strong. There certainly is no evidence of superior efficacy over oral or parenteral opioids. Currently, nebulized opioids are not recommended for use in the clinical setting unless it is the only practical way to administer the opioid. There may be a limited role for the use of anxiolytics. A recent study suggested the efficacy for end-of-life patients with severe dyspnea. 63 patients were randomized to an initial dose of 3 milligrams oral morphine or 2 milligrams of oral midazolam, and then the doses were rapidly titrated to efficacy. The five-day follow-up phase showed that midazolam was superior to morphine in controlling baseline dyspnea and breakthrough dyspnea. This study was just recently reported and will need additional study for confirmation. In managing delirium, we want to have a working definition. This definition comes from Stedman's Medical Dictionary. An altered state of consciousness consisting of confusion, distractibility, disorientation, disordered thinking and memory, defective perceptions, prominent hyperactivity, agitation, and autonomic nervous system overactivity caused by a number of toxic structural and metabolic disorders. There are three subtypes of delirium, hyperactive delirium, hypoactive delirium, and mixed delirium. It is very important to understand where the patient is on the trajectory of their illness when managing delirium. In preterminal delirium, 
treatment is focused on reversing an identified etiology. However, in terminal delirium, treatment is focused on controlling the symptomatology, recognizing that death is not far away. There are many causes of delirium, and time does not allow for an expanded discussion, but some causes are listed here. At end of life, I would give a lot of attention to the simple non-medical interventions that may make a difference for the patient. These would include reducing light and sound at night, minimizing intrusions, especially at night, reorienting the patient with verbal and visual reminders, maximizing the patient's vision and hearing by making sure that they're eyeglasses are available and that hearing aids are in and working properly, removing unnecessary IVs, catheters, and restraints, making music available to the patient, and even consider a massage. For agitated delirium, haloperidol is a very useful, inexpensive, and safe drug. The typical starting dose is 0.5 to 1 milligram, and that can be given orally, intravenously, or subcutaneously, hourly as needed for agitation. And the dosage can be titrated to the desired effect. The advantage of haloperidol is its cost, which is low, it is readily available, and it can be given via multiple routes. It is contraindicated in patients with Parkinson's disease. There are adverse reactions that can occur with haloperidol. Extrapyramidal symptoms can manifest several ways. One is dystonia, which is the involuntary contraction of major muscle groups. And by the way, if that does occur, it is treatable with diphenhydramine, one milligram per kilogram, either sub-Q or IV. Ecathesia which is a compelling need to move and the inability to sit still. Increased restlessness may be the way this manifests, which can be managed with dosage reduction if feasible or a small amount of lorazepam. And Parkinsonism syndrome can also occur. Haloperidol uh, does have the potential to prolong the QT interval the risk for cardiac conduction abnormalities seems to increase above 35 milligrams of haloperidol per day. Outside of uh, the patient cared for end of life, EKG monitoring is recommended for patients who receive haloperidol, especially if it is given intravenously. The risk benefit of haloperidol must be evaluated when death is imminent especially if consideration is being given for IV administration. Other options for treating delirium include risperidone and lorazepam. The doses are listed here. Risperidone is given orally. Lorazepam can be given orally or parenterally. An important thing to remember with lorazepam is that it can cause paradoxical agitation, especially if used alone. As I explained to students and residents, the receptors that lorazepam affects are the same receptors as alcohol. Looking back to college days, if they recall someone who consumes a six-pack of beer, one of two things is going to happen. They're either going to become sedated or they're going to get very rowdy. And the same thing can happen with the benzodiazepines. A small amount of benzodiazepine used with an antipsychotic is a common 
way that agitated delirium is managed. Patients have common fears when facing death. They have the fear of uncontrolled symptoms, especially pain. They have the fear of isolation or abandonment, the fear of loss of control, the fear of inability to cope, and the fear of becoming a burden to others. There are some important non-pharmacologic interventions that can help with anxiety. Give as much information as the patient desires. Clarify any misconceptions about the past and the present. Sometimes you're catching them up on information that they have never really understood in the past. And clarification can be very helpful. Establish attainable short-term goals and expectations. Provide ongoing emotional support and a caring presence. And help the patient reestablish a sense of self-worth. For pharmacologic intervention, the benzodiazepines are the mainstay of treating anxiety. Two commonly used medications are lorazepam and alprazolam, and their doses are listed here. Note that alprazolam has no IV form. There is a role for haloperidol in the treatment of severe anxiety and consider using haloperidol in patients that are not responding to benzodiazepines or who have an associated paranoia. The starting dose is 0.5 milligram twice a day and an additional 0.5 milligram can be given every four hours as needed. The dosage is titrated upward to five milligram twice a day, although sometimes more is needed. There are multiple routes of administration of haloperidol, as previously mentioned. Nausea and vomiting are the most distressing symptoms of all for some patients and impact patients at every level of their being. Nausea and vomiting will occur in 40 to 70% of patients with advanced cancer, depending upon the study. Nausea and vomiting impact the patient physically with resulting poor nutrition, with fluid and electrolyte imbalance and increased fatigue. It has a strong psychological impact, aggravating anxiety, discouragement, and decreased ability to give self-care. It's distressing for patients because they know that it distresses their loved ones who watch the symptoms as they're happening. And it decreases the ability of patients to interact with their loved ones. It can also provoke existential issues. There are five basic neural mechanisms that control vomiting, and they are mediated via the cerebral cortex, the chemoreceptor trigger zone, the gut wall, the vestibular nuclei, and the vomiting center. <clears throat> the vomiting center is made up of the area postrema and the fourth ventricle, which is this area right here. Also, it involves the nucleus tractus solitarius and the dorsal motor nucleus of the vagus nerve. The purpose of this slide is to show that the input to the vomiting center comes from a variety of sources. Note that chemotherapy-induced vomiting, radiation-induced vomiting, and the postoperative state all involve serotonin and the 5-HT3 receptor. Also note that the vestibular system involves histamine and acetylcholine pathways, and the area postrema responds to toxins via dopamine pathways. There are many potential causes of nausea and vomiting, a few, a few of which are noted here.
Certain medications can also be culprits uh, in the aggravation of nausea. A few medications are listed here. This is certainly not an exhaustive list. There are many, many other medications that can also aggravate nausea. Rather than just indiscriminately throwing drugs at nausea and vomiting, a rational approach is much more likely to be successful. To select the appropriate drug, identify the likely cause of the nausea and vomiting. Identify the pathway by which each potential cause triggers the vomiting reflex. Identify the neurotransmitter receptor that is involved in the identified pathway. Then choose the most potent antagonist to the receptor identified. Choose the most effective route of administration and titrate the dose. Then reassess management and look for additional causes if the patient is not responding to treatment as expected. In considering pharmacologic intervention for nausea and vomiting, several medications can be considered. Metoclopramide is effective for opioid-induced nausea and vomiting. The dosage is 5 to 15 milligrams before meals and at bedtime. I always start with 5 milligrams in the elderly patient. The medication can be given parenterally or orally. Remember that metoclopramide has central and peripheral dopamine receptor antagonism, so dystonia is possible. Again, if it is a significant problem, it can be treated with diphenhydramine or Benadryl. Haloperidol is probably the most potent dopamine antagonist available for the treatment of nausea and vomiting. It is useful for medication and metabolic-related nausea and vomiting. The dosage is 0.5 to 5 milligram every eight hours, up to 30 milligrams a day, and obviously the dosage is titrated uh, slowly as needed. Dystonia can occur with haloperidol. Haloperidol is a useful drug because it is inexpensive and is highly effective. IV dosing is off-label, and some institutions have not approved IV administration of haloperidol. Other institutions have approved it. Some nursing homes still resist the use of haloperidol uh, in any form, even in hospice patients. And this is probably provoked by longstanding institutional concerns uh, because of fears of regulatory review. It seems to be becoming less of an issue with education and as hospice has become more common in the nursing home setting, uh, it seems that uh, the resistance to haloperidol is less than it was at one time. Another alternative is prochlorperazine or compazine. It is also a dopamine antagonist and is an alternative to haloperidol. A suppository formulation is available. Dystonias can occur with this medication as mentioned with the others that I just reviewed. Antihistamines have a role for vestibular and gut receptor vomiting. The two antihistamines that are most commonly used are diphenhydramine and hydroxyzine. The 5-hydroxytryptamine antagonists have a unique role in the management of three types of vomiting. Chemotherapy-induced nausea and vomiting, radiation therapy-induced nausea and vomiting, and postoperative nausea and vomiting. It can also be used as a second or third line agent after other antiemetics have demonstrated limited utility. It may be particularly helpful to use in patients with bowel distension at end of life to relieve nausea. The two most commonly used serotonin 
five HT3 antagonists are ondansetron or zofran and granisetron or chytro. Personally, I cannot remember the last time I ever ordered a dose of uh, granisetron, but I think we're all quite familiar with the use of ondansetron and the dosages are listed here. The medication is available uh, for administration parenterally and orally. Corticosteroids can also be efficacious in the treatment of nausea associated with hepatic capsular distension, such as what you might see with uh, metastatic disease to the liver, diffuse carcinomatosis with large abdo abdominal tumor burden, and increased intracranial pressure from non-hemorrhagic causes. At the end-of-life setting, that would most commonly be due to the presence of uh, primary or metastatic uh, lesions in the brain. Mood swings and psychosis are possible, especially in patients with previous history of mental disorders. Dexamethasone can be given uh, intramuscularly, intravenously, or orally. Typically, a 6 to 10 milligram loading dose is given, and then dexamethasone is given as a 2 to 4 milligram dose one to two times a day for maintenance. Uh, with the intent of tapering the medication down to the smallest dose that will control symptoms. Note that 1.5 milligrams of dexamethasone equals approximately 10 milligrams of prednisone. Excess secretions can be a very distressing symptom for family members. Gurgling, or so-called death rattle, is common as death approaches, typically within the last 24 to 48 hours. There's no clear evidence that the patient suffers from this condition, but it is very troublesome to the unprepared family members. Personally, I try to remember to warn patients ahead of time about the development of this very distressing symptom. The cause is multifactorial. Relaxed muscles, the tongue falling more posteriorly, pooled secretions, from decreased swallowing. The rattling may wax and wane unpredictably. Interventions for excess secretions include positioning the patient on their side or in the semi-prone position. Frequent position changes can be helpful. Brief Trendelenburg may be of some help to give access to secretions for suctioning, but Avoid frequent suctioning, especially deep suctioning, which is generally ineffective. Reduce fluid administration and reassure the family members that the patient is not suffocating. Pharmacologic interventions uh, include anticholinergic medications, Atropine comes as a 1% ophthalmic solution, and this can be administered as a drop in the mouth every 30 to 60 minutes. Atropine can also be given intravenously or subcutaneously, starting with a 0.1 milligram dose and titrating upward to 0.5 milligram every 30 minutes. Glycopyrrolate is another uh, medication uh, which is anticholinergic in its action and the standard dose is 0.2 milligram IV or sub-Q every four hours as needed. Another medication that is sometimes used is transdermal scopolamine. I would caution the listeners to not reflexly put on a scopolamine patch just because they're hearing death rattle. It is an expensive medication and to even have partial effect takes about 12 hours. Steady state is achieved in 24 hours and the patch is ch uh, changed every 72 hours. It is not practical for acute onset of gurgling that requires medications with a faster onset. I would not consider this a first choice for chronic management of increased secretions because of the cost and because it is very strongly anticholinergic. 
I would like to now change the focus of my discussion to death pronouncement. The Iowa legislature has modified the list of those who may pronounce death. And this change has resulted from the problem of not having a clinician always present or available at the time of death. Death may now be pronounced by physicians, physician assistants, registered nurses, LPNs, and ARNPs. The law says that they, make, they may make pronouncement of death for a patient whose death is anticipated if the death occurs in a licensed hospital, a licensed healthcare facility, a Medicare certified home health agency, a Medicare certified hospice program, which would obviously include home care or facility, an assisted living facility or a residential care facility. A physician assistant or an advanced registered nurse practitioner may sign a death certificate if they're licensed in the state and if they have been in charge of the deceased patient's care. Signature is to occur within 72 hours of receipt of the death certificate from the funeral director or individual who initially takes custody of the body. A death certificate is going to require this information. The date and time the death was pronounced, the pronouncer's name, the pronouncer's professional title, the pronouncer's license number. The clinician or medical examiner is ultimately responsible for accurately completing these items on the death certificate. So if one of you is called to pronounce death, what is the general process? Well, first there is preparation. Get the details on the circumstances of death. See the patient before calling the attending physician unless there are unusual family dynamics or details surrounding the death that you should discuss with the attending. Determine if the family is requested or if you believe there's value in requesting an autopsy. Be sure to check institutional policies regarding autopsy. Find out if there's been contact by the organ donor network. Review the chart for important medical information which would include length of admission, the cause of death, and other relevant information. Find out who the family members are. Is there a power of attorney for healthcare decision making? Is the person part of a faith community? Would there be value to having the pastor or uh, clergy person called? When you walk into the room, you may want to ask the nurse or chaplain to accompany you. Uh, a spiritual advisor can be very helpful to give you support and also introduce you to the family. Introduce yourself. Ask each person their name in relationship to the patient. And then give some type of empathetic statement. I'm sorry for your loss, or this really must be very difficult for you. Or I'm sorry that we have to meet in these circumstances. Explain what you are there to do. Tell the family they are welcome to stay while you examine their loved one. Welcome questions. Answer any questions that family has. And if you honestly don't know the answer, just say, I can't answer that. I don't know the answer, but I'll try my best to find it for you. The actual death pronouncement starts by first identifying the patient to make sure that you have the right patient. The importance of this should not be minimized. Ascertain that the patient is not roused to verbal or tactile stimuli. Avoid any appearance that you're inflicting pain or attempting to cause painful stimulus to the patient. Listen for the absence of heart sounds and feel for the absence of a carotid pulse. Look and listen for the absence of spontaneous respirations. 
Record the position of the pupils and the absence of a pupillary light reflex. Then record the time at which your assessment was completed. When you are done, write a short note in the record, which includes this information. You were called to pronounce and then put in the patient's name. Then chart the findings of your exam and put in the date and the time of death. This is important later when you get the death certificate. Document if family and attending physician were notified. Document if the family declines or accepts autopsy. And then document if the medical examiner was notified. All of this information that I've just reviewed is available at the website that I mentioned earlier in this presentation, www.eperc.mcw.edu. I want you to be aware of a few caveats. Most deaths that you will encounter will be expected because of the underlying disease, but be aware that there are some situations for which the involvement of the medical examiner is required or recommended. I won't go through all of those, but just a few are mentioned here that I've highlighted. Violent death, which includes homicide, suicide, or accidental death. Death thought to be related to virulent or contagious disease, which may constitute a public hazard. Death that has occurred unexpectedly or from an unexplained cause or death of a person who was pre-diagnosed as terminal or bedfast, but did not have a physician in attendance within the preceding 30 days, or death of a person who was admitted to and has received services from a hospice program if the physician or registered nurse employed by the program was not in attendance within 30 days prior to death. So, in summary, the patient is the best bedside monitor. Effective symptom management at end of life is possible and desirable. Symptom management at end of life involves the skillful use of simple tools and clinical principles. Death pronouncement is a necessary skill for professionals involved in end of life care. Thank you for the opportunity of sharing this information with you today. Uh, I wish you the very best as you continue giving excellent end-of-life care uh, to patients in your areas of practice. Thank you.